Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Professor Carlton F.W. Larson about his book, The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Larson is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis School of Law. The Trial of Allegiance looks at the law of treason during the American Revolution, showing just how central treason is to understanding the course of the revolution. Looking at Pennsylvania, Professor Larson provides readers with a comprehensive yet very readable study of treason prosecutions brought by Americans against non-patriots or non-rebels, depending on who you're asking at the time. Larson uses these trials and their aftermath to to show how treason helped shape America's national identity during the revolution. Professor Larson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I guess to get things started off, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic? Why did you decide to study it? Well, this is something I've been interested in for uh, a very long time, actually over 23 years now. Um, it started out as a senior thesis in college uh, and become interested in the career of James Wilson, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, and I'd read in a biography of him that he had defended persons who were accused of treason uh, during the American Revolution by supporting the British. Uh, and the idea that a, a sign of the Declaration of Independence was, you know, showing up in a courtroom uh, as defense counsel to accuse, to accuse traitors was just enormously fascinating. Um, and it got me thinking more about, well, what did treason really mean during this time period uh, when arguably everybody was potentially a traitor? Because um, if you remain loyal to uh, Great Britain, you were potentially a treason, uh, committing treason uh, against the American states. Uh, but um, if you were loyal to the American states, you were potentially committing treason against uh, Great Britain. And so I was fascinated by how the law played out uh, during this very convoluted time period uh, where allegiance was potentially shifting. Uh, and so that's that's how I got fascinated by it. Um, and at the time, it was entirely of historical interest. It had really no uh, contemporary relevance uh, at all. Um, in recent years, treason has become sort of hot again uh, because of various events in the news. Uh, but my interest in it really was entirely uh, historical. And then after I went to law school, um, I, I developed, I think, a, a better understanding of the law that was being employed. Uh, and then uh, once I became a law professor and finally had tenure, I had time to sit down and really um, write the book uh, the way I wanted it to be written. And when you kind of get going in the book and, you know, the title of the book is called Trials of Allegiance, but you introduce readers to this term and you provide them with a definition of what this means. And so can you give our our well, hopefully soon to be readers, but our listeners right now, uh, an idea of what you mean by trials of allegiance? Sure. So in a very narrow sense, what it refers to as a set of trials where people are actually put on trial. 
um, because of uh, their their allegiance. And so people who, so in the most formal sense, the people who are actually tried uh, for the crime of high treason um, uh, in, in a court, but there are also people who are tried for this in front of uh, military tribunals or in front of uh, committees of safety, um, who also heard some of these cases. Um, but in a broader sense, I mean, trials refers to really just sort of the general problem that almost anyone living through this period had to deal with. It was a, a trial, not in the in the legal sense, but in the sort of the the personal sense of a of a struggle that allegiance imposed uh, very difficult choices uh, on people uh, in terms of which side would ultimately support and what types of actions they could take uh, without potentially running afoul uh, of the law. Yeah. And I mean, I think for a lot of readers uh, of the book and, you know, just kind of who are interested in the American Revolution, but might not have as much, you know, historical knowledge of it, you know, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, the American Revolution was really a, a civil war. And so when we're thinking about who is going to, you know, decide what side they're going to fight for, you know, that really is, as you've said, you know, a trial in and of itself. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the American Revolution really is it's our first civil war. Um, and it's a civil war in many ways, just as much as uh, the later one in the 1860s. Uh, you had large numbers of people who supported uh, the British or who opposed independence or who opposed the new state governments for, for a variety of uh, reasons. Uh, and uh, you had fathers fighting against sons and brothers against brothers. You had you know, families completely ripped apart uh, over this issue. And so um, in some ways, it was even arguably more of a civil war in the sense that it was divisive uh, throughout the entire 13 colonies. Um, whereas arguably in the U.S. Civil War, there was more of a north-south uh, split. Whereas here you had, uh, you know, both sort of what we would now call ardent patriots and ardent loyalists um, throughout uh, the entire country. And so can you explain to our listeners some of the ways in which uh, treason is fundamental to understanding the revolution? You lay out a number of ways in the book, and you know I don't expect you to go through all of them because you know we obviously want our listeners to pick up the book themselves. But can you give our, our listeners you know a taste of why this is so fundamental? Sure. Well, at the very beginning, um, when people are arguing about um, British policies, you know, whether or not they are constitutional or not, and you start to d get, a, get a, a, a certain level of American resistance, uh, you end up having a significant debate about treason, uh, in which British legal officials uh, conclude that at least in some cases, um, certain American colonists had committed treason. Uh, and there is a suggestion that these people should be brought to Britain uh, for trial. Um, and this provokes an absolutely furious reaction. Uh, on the American side of the Atlantic, uh, by people who insist that no, this is not treason. We are simply resisting uh, arbitrary government in ways that are perfectly appropriate. Um, and it's totally inappropriate for us to be sent to Britain for trial because um, we have a right to a trial by a jury of our peers, and that means a local jury um, right here uh, in America. Uh, and then in this sort of very curious twist, um, they also begin arguing um, about uh, that the British are actually the real traitors. Um, that, that by um, violating certain understandings of the British Constitution, those people have committed treason. So the real traitors are 
British generals or real tra- traders or members of parliament or um, leading British officials, um, you know, perhaps even uh, the king itself. And so that debate about sort of who is the real traitor um, tends to be a very um, significant part of the uh, pre-war uh, debate. And then once the war begins, uh, it now becomes a very real moment um, where you know who is the enemy, who is the traitor, is not just sort of a matter of theoretical political disagreement, but potentially a matter of life or death um, when we have actual armies uh, on the field. And then as we go through with the war, um, you know the law of treason plays out in the in the same way in determining uh, you know who uh, has been consistent with their allegiance and who. Uh, has not. Yeah, I mean, for me, when when thinking about it, I just find it so interesting, as you just, you know, said that, you know, it goes from something that is, you know, kind of almost like high in the clouds, like, let's talk about the abstract principles of law, blah, 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 to something that is really like, okay, this is like, actually something that can cost someone's life. Once the fighting really starts, and you have armies on both sides, you know, marching through the colonies or independent states, depending on which side you are, you know, this is something where people really have to sit down and decide what does this mean? Yeah. And what is particularly awkward about this period, um, really sort of between Lexington and Concord and the Declaration of Independence is that you wanted to reach for the language of treason and say that the people who are supporting the British were, were traitors. And so people do make that rhetorical move. Um, but it's a very awkward fit um, because the colonies hadn't declared independence from England. Um, formally, they were all allegiant to the king. Formally, people still owed allegiance uh, to the king. And so it's very hard to say that you know, the British soldiers or the people supporting them are somehow committing treason unless it's actually the case that you don't really owe allegiance uh, to the king anymore, um, which is, this, I think, sort of as a de facto matter was true. Um, once the war gets going. And, you know, one of the parts of your book that is kind of takes center stage and that I found very interesting myself is the role of juries. And when we're talking about, you know, who's deciding like what treason is, what the law will be and everything like that, you know, that's one thing, like who's making these laws. But as you point out, you know, the role of juries in actually convicting people cannot be overlooked, that this is a very important aspect of this. And so can you explain how juries fit into your study and why they're so important to understanding treason and the revolution more broadly? Yeah. So, I mean, juries were kind of central to um, much of the revolutionary ideology. And, you know, as I mentioned, the the argument about being tried in Britain um, was seen as just fundamentally inconsistent with this idea of local control from a jury uh, of your peers. And so um, one of the things that I've sometimes can be problematic with um, works in American history is we refer very generically to the jury or make some passing reference to a person being convicted or acquitted. Um, But that obscures the actual agency of uh, the jurors themselves. Um, And so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to take a really close look and see how juries actually functioned uh, during the revolution, how were these jurors selected? Um, what types of people served uh, on the jury? What can we figure out about their deliberations uh, to the extent that we can? Um, and then what does that tell us about how this institution actually uh, 
operated. Uh, and one of the one of the reasons I got fascinated by this was I started looking at the jury lists for a series of trials in in Pennsylvania. And this was back um, when I was working on the college thesis. And one of the things I noticed was you tended to see the same names over and over again. And it wasn't the case that you know it was the identical juries; they were different for each person. Um, but certain people seemed to be serving over and over again. Um, and so that struck me as fascinating. And so I started you know, just running the numbers and figuring it out. And it turned out you have a small number of significant repeat jurors um, who continually served. And so um, what I then did was essentially sort of reverse, reverse engineered uh, jury selection to the extent I could um, to figure out why some of the people were serving over and over again. And when you do that, um, what you end up coming down to is this institution of uh, peremptory challenges um, where you can simply, a, a litigant simply challenge a juror for no particular reason, but they simply say, I don't want that person on the jury. Uh, and for these treason trials, you had um, 35 peremptory challenges for the defense and the prosecution got zero, uh, which for modern lawyers is very hard to understand because um, in modern trials, um, have equal numbers for the prosecution and the defense. Um, but that wasn't the case then. And so the defense was able to use these um, peremptory challenges um, in ways that they thought would benefit um, the defense. So it seems that they preferred um, older jurors. They preferred jurors with English ethnicity. They preferred um, jurors who hadn't personally performed their militia service. Um, they preferred um, Anglican and Quaker jurors um, over, uh, say, Presbyterian jurors. Uh, and they prefer generally wealthy jurors over poor jurors. Uh, and so it seems like in so doing, they were trying to construct a jury that would uh, in some ways be more beneficial um, to the defense along some of the, the axes that historians have pointed to as um, lines of division uh, in society at this time. And so if we're thinking about what treason looks like at this time, can you explain to our listeners uh, what treason uh, is thought about and what it looks like by the eve of the revolution? You know, once things are kind of, you know, starting to, you know, kick off with, you know, the protests and everything like that, what is the kind of colonial understanding of treason at this time? So there's a there's an English statute of treasons um, enacted in 1351 during the reign of uh, Edward III, and that's sort of the foundation of uh, English treason law. And so um, by the time of the revolution, that law had been around for over 400 years. Um, it had been the subject of significant commentary by various English judges uh, and treatise writers. Uh, so there's a fairly um, sort of shared professional understanding, at least among lawyers, uh, as to what treason was uh, and wasn't. There were some debates on some issues, but the basic contours of it um, were all shaped uh, by this statute. Um, for colonial um, Pennsylvanians, and Pennsylvania is the state I, I focus on here, um, there was some debate as to what extent that statute fully applied in the colony, and that was a debate in other states as well. Um, so some, some contentions were that certain types of treason can only be committed in the realm of England, for example. And there were questions as to whether, uh, revolts against Pennsylvania's proprietary government, um, counted as treason against the king. Uh, so those issues were, um, were lurking. Uh, and then when the, re once the revolution happens and the American colonies have to draft their own treason laws, um, they're largely drawing on, um, 
this body of English treason law as it was um, sort of understood and conveyed. There's obviously significant changes. It's no longer a crime, treason to compass the death of the king. Um, but we ultimately end up with, say, in our U.S. Constitution, are these phrases adhering to the enemy, uh, giving the maiden comfort, or levying war against the United States. And those phrases actually come directly uh, from the 1351 Statute of Treasons. And so we've already mentioned uh, you've already mentioned once about how the colonists and you know the soon to be independent Americans are trying to formulate their own understandings of treason. And so one of the things that I found very fascinating was your discussion about how Americans are trying to deal with imperial officials accusing them of treason and trying to you know work out a logic of why they're not committing treason so what does that look like yeah so that's you know essentially i think um part of the source of why we ultimately have a treason provision in the u.s constitution which which is um uh, meant to be a restrictive provision uh and one of the things that you know the revolution has experienced was um, that their um, resistance activities have been labeled treason um, by British official, officials. And they just fundamentally um, rejected um, that idea that whatever we're doing um, is simply not uh, an act of treason. Uh, and I think it's it's a debatable point under English law whether um, some of it was or wasn't. I don't think it was completely crazy um, for British officials to reach the conclusions uh, that they did. Um, but by this point, there really did seem to be a divergence, at least on on certain issues, as to how it was perceived in Great Britain and how it was perceived uh, in the American colonies. Um, and so that experience, I think, uh, is why ultimately in Article 3 we end up with this more narrow division. It's not so much that there were debates during the war about whether certain things constituted adhering to the enemy or not. Um, it was more that prior to the war, uh, there had been the threatened use of treason law to uh, go against essentially political dissenters. And and it was that concern that I think animated uh, Article 3. And I know from my own personal experience and kind of researching stuff during this time period, you know, one of the things that I would think would be kind of culprit number one for a British official to accuse of treason would be, you know, committees of correspondence or committees of safety that are basically running the show for a large uh, for a large part of time before actual fighting kicks off and kind of acting as pseudo governments in a way. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that the British find to be treason is this meeting of the Mass- Massachusetts Provincial Conference um, in, I think it was in uh, 1774, uh, that, that that and essentially arming uh, a colonial uh, militia, that these were perceived as um, acts of uh, treason. And they actually named names, uh, uh, the British legal officials, as, as to who um, they intended to bring back uh, to Britain for trial. And so I think a lot of listeners would probably be familiar if we're talking about this topic and thinking that, oh, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were committing treason. You know, we always kind of see this pop up during like the 4th of July where it's just like, look at what these people are doing. You know, they are taking their own lives in their hands and everything like that to sign this document. And one of the things that you point out in your book is that while the Declaration of Independence is obviously important, if we're thinking about treason 
from the colonial slash American point of view that the declaration doesn't actually mark uh, a point of departure. And so where do you find that point and how does the declaration actually fit into that story? Yeah, so I actually think that this the mere signing of the Declaration of Independence, um, it's possible actually wasn't an act of treason um, under English law. Because you might imagine a group of people just get together, they sign some document declaring themselves independent, and then absolutely nothing comes of it. Uh, th- that, in the absence of any actual force being used, uh, might not be treason. Um, but, but obviously, the people who signed the Declaration had done a lot more than that. They had you know, supported and equipped an army and they had done all kinds of things uh, that um, were uh, treasonous. Um, so the, the way the Declaration of Independence intersects with um, treason law on the American side is um, prior to the Declaration, uh, we had these people who were aiding uh, the British Army as against uh, the American Army. Um, and everybody called them traitors uh, and there were trials for what was called treason. Uh, in front of committees of safety, but um, none of those committees felt that they could impose the death penalty. Uh, that is, the people who were convicted were all uh, imprisoned. Uh, and the thought was it simply cannot be treason uh, until there's actual formal uh, independence. Uh, and so with what, adoption of the Declaration of Independence, it's now possible um, to make treason uh, a capital crime. Uh, and some of the people at the time justified the Declaration of Independence for precisely that reason, um, that it would now allow um, capital punishment to be visited on uh, the uh, the British adherents. So one of the people who says that is, is Thomas McCain, the Chief Justice uh, of Pennsylvania. And there's another line in the book from, uh, I think it was a man in Massachusetts, who says, you know, the this, this most important reason for the Declaration of Independence was cutting off uh, the Tories, um, that it now makes a, a treason prosecution principled uh, and coherent in a way that it just wasn't before, so long as uh, the colonies were technically loyal uh, to the English crown. And for me, I just, I find that so interesting in that, you know, sometimes, you know, at least from like a historical standpoint, you look at the Declaration of Independence and in terms of like its legal weight, you know, sometimes you, there's not much of it depending on the situation. But here, as you're showing, you know, the declaration is actually really important for what Americans can do when it comes to treason. And, you know, what they can do with, with treason is actually really important for the cause itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so kind of going back to juries that we've, you know, kind of touched on before, and you you were kind of talking about the composition of juries earlier. Uh, But could you tell our listeners, you know, what usually happened with these juries? You know, you kind of hinted that, you know, the defense is trying to get something favorable for them, but does it work and you know if it does what does this show us about the revolution and treason itself yes yeah, so, so one of the, the things I, I i find most striking about these jury trials in um in pennsylvania is that pretty much all the defendants uh are acquitted um and this is really quite extraordinary if you think that you know uh, philadelphia had been occupied by uh the british army had been a 
you know, difficult uh, occupation. Uh, the people who were, you know, were particularly loyal to the U.S. and had all fled. Uh, and then ultimately the British army left. And so the Americans reconquered the city. Uh, and people who had aided the British are, are put on trial uh, for treason. Uh, and um, one wouldn't expect, um, in, in, again, in the midst of this violent, um, deadly civil war, um, the juries would look with much favor on people who are accused of doing that. Um, but again and again and again, they do. Um, they acquit. And in the, um, at least in the series of Philadelphia trials, the two cases where they convicted, uh, almost all the members of the jury petitioned uh, the Supreme Executive Council, which was the state's plural executive, uh, for clemency. Uh, and so I found this all very puzzling. You know, why was this? Um, and I think the answer to that is, um, is the death penalty. Uh, that is, uh, the jurors simply did not think uh, that the death penalty was an appropriate punishment for treason, even in the midst of this uh, civil war that potentially put them all at risk. Uh, and here, uh, the jurors seem to be treating treason differently than they did other capital crimes like murder or, um, or burglary or, or rape, um, that this was something just different um, because the underlying crime was fundamentally a political crime. It was a crime of uh, political disagreement. Uh, and that meant that the person who did it wasn't necessarily an incorrigible evil criminal, uh, but someone who could potentially be redeemed. Um, and moreover, was somebody that the jurors could potentially understand as someone similar to them, um, because pretty much every juror knew someone uh, who uh, had joined the other side, be it a family member or a friend or uh, a business associate. Um, it, it wasn't so easy to paint the other side as essentially, um, you know, incorrigible devils. Uh, and so there's this sense that what to do with these people is convict them, um, maybe take their property, um, maybe imprison them, but not to uh, hang them. And so with the earliest cases, that was the sense as well. We could convict them uh, and then they, they'll get a pardon. But Pennsylvania's government didn't do that. Um, and they let two people be executed. Uh, and um, this was a very divisive thing. And pretty much every jur jury after that um, refused to convict, um, even in cases where the evidence of guilt was probably pretty clear because they simply didn't trust the state government anymore um, not to hang a person who was convicted. Um, and so in this way, the pattern of trials is different than that in other states, where in other states it seems that there were more convictions for treason, uh, but then most people were ultimately pardoned. Um, but because the Pennsylvania jurors didn't trust um, their government to actually carry through with pardons, um, they just went ahead and, and outright uh, acquitted. And for me, I find it so interesting to think about this because, you know, at least when it comes to Pennsylvania, it kind of shows the limits of kind of revolutionary ideology, at least at least to me, in terms of showing how, you know, how far the kind of radicalism of the American Revolution, uh, to take a term that we kind of see in history, at least, uh, how far that would go. Because as you're showing, like, people are saying, okay, like, yeah, there, this might be treason, but you know, we're going to treat this differently. And to me, I mean, to me, that's like a really important contribution that you're making there. 
Well, yeah, and I think you know it's it is true. Like the American Revolution is it's you know it's not the French Revolution, it's not the Russian Revolution, right? I mean it it doesn't end in this you know just horrible bloodbath. I mean, there, of course, there's there's fighting, obviously, um, with the armies, um, but in terms of you know some type of civilian purge, I mean that's just simply not the case. Um, what people ended up going in front of juries. Um, they had very good defense counsel uh, on their behalf, uh, and the juries were ultimately receptive uh, to their arguments. And I think that shows sort of, uh, in some ways, you know, a commitment to legal process, um, to doing this the right way, even if the results were maybe perhaps not what the state wanted. Um, but that's how we're going to do things. And I think that matters, right? That, you know, even in time of war, to the best extent we can, we're going to follow um, existing law and existing legal procedure. And, you know, you just mentioned there that, you know, these people in terms of, you know, the trial going on, they have access to really good defense counsels and you kind of opened up in terms of like how you got interested in this. And, uh, this situation actually opens up your book, but you return to it. Uh, something that I think, a fair amount of people might not be familiar with. I know I wasn't, but the battle, quote unquote, of Fort Wilson. And so you use this to talk about, you know, the kind of aftermath of trials. And so how does this battle kind of typify the sort of response that you see from the wider public to these treason trials? Yeah. So one of the, the things I uncovered is, is that, um, this string of acquittals um, that you know many of these these lawyers had managed to procure uh, was not popular. Um, uh, Seventeen seventeen seventy nine opens up. Um, Pennsylvania goes into a um, you know really quite bad economic times, and there is unbelievable bitterness um, that you know these acquitted defendants are wandering around, uh, and people think that the juries have not done. Uh, what they were supposed to do. And so there's extensive criticism of juries in the newspapers. Um, there is an attempt to interfere with a, um, what's called a misprision of treason trial um, uh, in the uh, in the city court. Um, and then finally, sort of all this resentment uh, erupts in, in what's called the, the Battle of Fort Wilson. Um, and this is, I think, really one of the most extraordinary events uh, of the American Revolution. So that's, so that's why I chose it to open the book. Uh, and this is a few days after James Wilson won uh, another acquittal uh, for a treason defendant, uh, this time with the courtroom back in, in what's now Independence Hall. Uh, he is in his house um, with a number of other folks, and um, he's under attack. Um, there are um, uh, militiamen in the streets um, beating the drums and firing at his house, and people in the house are firing back. Um, and at the end of this battle, you know, six to seven people are dead. Um, it's ultimately uh, put down by uh, a group of, uh, of, of cavalry unit. Um, but this is one of the few um, sort of instances of you know outright urban warfare, uh, right in the city of Philadelphia itself during the Revolution. And what's particularly horrifying about it is it's not Americans fighting the British; um, it's Americans fighting Americans. Um, in part over this issue of uh, treason and what should be done with the people who remain loyal um, to Britain. So Wilson almost loses his life uh, in this incident. And so in many ways, it's, it's surprising that it's not 
more well known. Although I guess I understand why it's not well known. It's not one of those events that really has any obvious heroes. Um, and it's really quite embarrassing actually, um, to sort of a, a, a nicer narrative about the revolution. So, uh, I can see why, you know, it's, it's perhaps not highlighted in, you know, many accounts of the revolution. Um, but it is, you know, I think it reveals a lot, uh, about how this event played out. Yeah. I mean, for me, when, when I was, you know, first reading about it, I was, I was, you know, at first I was just like, wait, what, what, what is going on here? Um, you know, and partly because I wasn't aware of how much, you know, Wilson would have been disliked for any number of things, particularly, you know, this treason trial, because for me, you know, I'm most familiar with Wilson being in the Constitutional Convention, creating the Constitution and being, you know, complimented so much and praised so much for being like one of, if not the most uh, educated lawyers of the time, which kind of leads into my next question of how does this whole revolutionary experience with treason and the ideas that are forming during it, and you've kind of already hinted at this, how does this affect the adoption, eventual adoption of the constitution. Yeah. So I think it, it, it does shape it. And partly it's because, you know, some of the players uh, were there. So James Wilson um, is generally considered um, the, probably the person most responsible for uh, the inclusion of a treason clause uh, in the U S constitution. And, um, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a thing that in any state constitution had a definition of treason um, in England, it was done by statute. Granted, it was a very old statute, but Parliament was constantly tinkering with it and passing uh, new statutes uh, dealing with treason. Uh, so here we had uh, an effort to essentially say treason is off limits to the, to the, the Congress. This is um, the definition, and um, that's it and no more. Uh, and I think that basic idea that it should be um, you know, set aside from uh, from politics and from you know, changing vagaries of uh, of political life, uh, very much bears uh, Wilson's imprint. Um, now, the precise details of it, I think, um, probably bear um, the work of some other hands uh, as well. Um, but Wilson, you know, in later um, instances, like in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, you know, singled out the treason clause for uh, special praise, and so I think he, um, you know, related to this in a very, very uh, personal way, right? I mean, this was someone who had defended uh, treason cases in about the most volatile political environment you could possibly imagine, um, and of course, almost lost his life uh, in having done so. Uh, and Wilson, as you know, of course, you know, very educated lawyer, and I think that stood him in good stead at the Constitutional Convention. Um, it probably didn't stand him in particularly good stead during the, the Battle of Fort Wilson. I think because he, precisely because he was an educated lawyer. Uh, and because he had a, a reputation, I don't know how well deserved or not, for um, for, for arrogance, um, and um, he was not a soldier. Um, he was probably perceived by um, you know certain members of of the Pennsylvania militia as not truly uh, one of them. Um, and then, of course, we we know very little about Wilson generally um, because even after he's he's on he's helps draft the Constitution. He's a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, but then ends up dying um, after having several instances of being in debtor's prison and essentially on the run from his creditors. And so 
um, it was um, a very sort of unfortunate end. Uh, but to me, still one of, one, of, one of the great fascinating lives of the revolution. And, you know, we still don't have any modern biography of James Wilson, which I think is you know, tr truly a stunning gap because his life is um, as interesting as that of almost anyone. And like Alexander Hamilton, he's an immigrant. He comes uh, from Scotland um, in his 20s. And so, you know, you go on after, you know, speaking about all of this to talk about how, you know, briefly how treason operates in the new nation. However, I definitely want our listeners to turn into readers. And so I'm going to encourage you all to go buy this book again, The Trials of a Legion, Treason, Juries and the American Revolution to find out how this story ends. And then also the kind of finer details of the history that we've just painted for you. But we have this book in our hands uh, and hopefully, you know, we've either read it or we're buying it, but we have it. And so what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on now? And it is completely okay, given that this just came out uh, earlier this month, if I'm remembering correctly, um, that if you just say, I'm taking a break right now. <laughs> well, it would be nice to be taking a break right now, but I actually have a second book coming out um, on treason. And it's fine. Just before um, you... Um, this interview started, I actually got um, copies of what the covers, proposed uh, images of what the cover might look like. Um, and so this book is called um, Treason, uh, A Concerned Citizen's Guide uh, to the Law. And um, this grew out of essentially the last couple of years in which um, treason is no longer a matter just of historical interest, but people have lots of questions about whether um, treason is being committed um, even as we speak. And so uh, I wrote this book as a uh, a very much sort of, you know, for, for, for non-lawyers, um, sort of to translate some of the legalese of, of treason law uh, and also to tell the stories of some fascinating treason trials in American history beginning in the period after uh, the trials of legions end. So um, picking up stories like Aaron Burr and Jefferson Davis and uh, Kastner Hanway uh, and the resistance of the Fugitive Slave Act, um, uh, Tokyo Rose, um, characters like that. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun. I've I've learned a lot more about treason law uh, while working on that project. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy that book as well. Uh, like Professor Larson has just told, like Professor Larson just told us, uh, treason is no longer sort of a just kind of historical topic, but it is something that I think a lot of people should learn about. And so. I encourage you not only to go out and buy this book, but go out and buy Professor Larson's next book as well. Uh, and so in any case, uh, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.